My name is Bill Peschel, and this is Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, a conversation with Cordelia Francis Biddle. Cordelia Francis Biddle is an independent historian and an author with a passion for history, particularly involving the Philadelphia area. She has written numerous magazine articles, a one-man show about St. Peter's Church in Philadelphia, and an interpretive tour for the Ebenezer Maxwell Museum. She wrote a biography of Catherine Drexel, the heiress who became a Catholic nun and used her inheritance to help African Americans and Native Americans and was canonized as a saint. And since this is a podcast sponsored by a mystery bookstore, we have to mention her crossword mystery series, 12 novels she co-wrote with her husband, Steve Zettler, under the pen name Nero Blanc. And she has also published five novels in the Martha Beale mystery series that is set in the Gilded Age of Philadelphia. But we are here today to talk about her nonfiction book, Biddle, Jackson, and a Nation in Turmoil, the infamous bank war that was released in February from Sunbury Press. So please welcome to the show, Cordelia Francis Biddle. Thank you for coming here today. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm, I'm delighted to actually not be with you, but be with you uh, visually, I guess. It's Absolutely. wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Now, I understand that uh, you have a relationship. You're, uh, you're related to Nicholas Biddle, the subject of your book. I am. He's my uh, great, 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 I don't know how many great um, grandfather. So direct descendant. And uh, like all of us in the family, I grew up hearing about him. He was kind of a mythical figure. He was the great financier. I went to his country estate, Andalusia, when I was a child and was in awe of it. It never occurred to me, though, that I was going to write about him. And I became fascinated first in the era because I knew nothing about it. And the same was true with my Martha Beale books, which take place in 1842, 40s, early 40s. Um, I knew nothing about it. And I knew about Jackson, but it was, it was hazy in my mind. And I thought, let me go back and look at this man and his place in history, which is what I started to do. And I went to Andalusia. Um, to do my primary research, some of my primary research, and found, lo and behold, that another descendant had just given Andalusia, Biddle's estate, um, a gift of Biddle's original correspondence with James Monroe. And they had been hidden in an attic in this descendant's house. No one had ever seen them before. And the archivist was busy trying to find archival sleeves and catalog them and so forth. And I was agog. They were so different than what I found eventually in the finished letters in the Library of Congress. And Biddle had excised words and phrases which made them almost impossible to to understand because it was pursuant to our uh, previous correspondence, I agree, but what on earth is that? But the draft correspondence has all of the information that Biddle felt was too dangerous to put in the mail. And I thought, what is going on here? I was so intrigued. And so that, it was like my little, personal uh, murder, not a murder mystery, but a mystery. 
<laughs> well, it certainly gives you an idea of what he what was going on in his head and what he wanted to convey as opposed to what was actually in the letters themselves, which could be intercepted and copied and all that. So he had to be very careful about what he was saying in print that could be um, uh, dangerous. Absolutely. And he was, um, Monroe had asked him, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but um, Monroe had asked him to, um, at least step, I'll step back for a split second. He was, when he uh, was a young man, he um, went to Europe in 1804 to 1807. He graduated from Princeton University 1800 at the age of 15. It wasn't called Princeton University then, but it became Princeton University. Uh, he was the youngest man to this day to uh, do so. And he ended up um, working as a private secretary for the minister to France and then to the minister to England, who was Monroe. And um, that was where his friendship with Monroe sprang. And um, so eventually when Monroe was looking as president, was looking for help with creating the second bank of the United States. And that bank had so many problems in its inception. There was graft and greed and insider trading. He turned to Nicholas Biddle because he knew he could trust him and said, I'm gonna put you on the board here. Could you report back? So the, a lot of those letters dealt with, don't believe this person, believe that person. But as I said, it was excised. So then he, he simply, journeyed down to Washington and said, this is what I discovered, because he couldn't trust that information in the mail. And of course, there were no, there was no Acela. This was a, a three-day jaunt in a stagecoach. Oh, yes. Well, let's pull back even a little bit more further, because what was important about having, because this is the second national bank of the United States, and we're used to seeing banks on every corner and, and you know, very modern system of banking. But back then, the notion of a national bank, and this is similar to, uh, and Nicholas Biddle had known this, this is similar to the Bank of England, or whatever the French equivalent is. This is a bank in which basically it's the repository of the government's money. And that in colonial times, financing the government was very important, right? Absolutely. Well, this was the first bank of the United States, as we know, was, was the creation of Alexander Hamilton. And um, I don't think there's going to be a rap musical about Nicholas Biddle, but if anybody's listening and wishes to do so, I'm, I'm happy to advise, um, but that was, Biddle thought that was an incredible institution and that institution came under attack. There was people who didn't want a national bank who felt that there should, there, there again, it's states' rights. Um, people felt that there should be a, the Bank of Virginia or the Bank of Massachusetts, but there shouldn't be a national bank. And um, so, Alexander Hamilton's bank came under attack in 1810 and Biddle defended it as a young neophyte legislator and said, we must have a national bank. How will monies move from one place to another? If there's a war, how are you going to pay your troops? You can't do it with gold. Um, so he argued this and, and yet the Pennsylvania legislator, legislature said, we are not going to continue with this bank. And that happened 
throughout the nation at that point. And then of course, there was the War of 1812 and we almost went bankrupt because there was no national bank. And so the second bank of the United States wasn't chartered until 1816. And was it that in response to the conditions, the yes. economic conditions as a result? So it's like yes. they chartered one bank and that was enough to uh, grow the country, to lend confidence in the currency um, because all the states operated their own banks for good or otherwise. And, there, and having a national yes. bank lent more confidence that allowed the country to develop its resources and grow at the end of its natural life term, because these banks were chartered for like 20 years, weren't they? Yes, that's correct. It had to be renewed. So it got didn't get renewed. The war came, they learned their lesson, they started another bank. And 20 years later, during Andrew Jackson's presidency, um, you, you want to take it from there? It's like we didn't <laughs> learn the lesson the first we didn't, time. But it was still this polarizing issue of states' rights of you know, I do, I, people in the South not trusting people in the North. It was the Whigs versus the Whigs in the North versus the Democrats in the South. And there was this deep divide. And the bank, um, Andrew Jackson's stalwart supporters used the bank as a means of really attacking the other political side. And it became so vitriolic and vicious. I mean, there was a cartoon of uh, Biddle being pilloried, uh, in a political cartoon in the newspaper, of Biddle being pilloried on one side and Andrew Jackson being roasted on a spit on the other. I, the politics were so frightening. And I did my research at the uh, Library of Company in Philadelphia, where I was able to read the real newspapers, not on microfiche, but the real copies of the newspapers. And paging through them, I spent uh, months happily ensconced in other eras. But they would bring you the real newspaper bound together. So you ask for a month and you page through them. And to look at these images, I thought, what? happened to our nation? Why did we grow to hate one another so much? And it was also very interesting to me that Biddle considered himself a populist. He thought that banking and infrastructure, which he was also very interested in and created canals and railroads, that banking at distances brought people together so if I'm in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, I know then how people in, let's say, Georgia are borrowing money and why they're borrowing money and what they need. And that the people in South Carolina then have the same sense of understanding of the people in Massachusetts. But somehow during Jackson's time, that really was used against not only the bank, but the opposing political party. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is, is, of course, about the bank war, but it's also really about Biddle. And you cover his life uh, uh, from the beginning. You go even go back to his antecedents, including uh, Nicholas Biddle, his uncle, I believe, who was the yes. captain, which yes. I have read a lot of naval history. And I could 
cringe at the thought of him going up. There was a ship-to-ship battle in which he had 32 guns and he went up against a ship of the line with 64 guns. And I admit he it was a brave, brave captain. And unfortunately, there's the numbers prevailed and his ship blew up with only four survivors. Yes. But yes. I was I was astonished at the action you described in the book. Well, that was fascinating to me to read that. And I found a wonderful account written by James Fenimore Cooper. And um, James Fenimore Cooper had by then become a famous novelist. And my guess um, is that his publisher must have said, you know, Mr. Cooper, you're so successful. And if you turn your mind to something else, I'll bet you sell just as well. So he created this vast tome of the entire history of the United States Navy up until that time. Mm -hmm. And he was meticulous in describing the exact locations and the headings and so forth and the and the the sea and what was how the sea was churning and swelling and um so that account of that battle is you you feel that you're right there of course he's a wonderful writer was sorry yeah. to me he's still alive he's still a good writer he is yes that's right that's true <laughs> well it explains why there's uh i'm looking in further into nicholas's uh, uh legacy that there were four ships in the u.s navy named for him in the 20th century including one yes. as recently as 93 and yes. it's, it's a wonderful way to honor his memory and his courage um and you know it was he he played a very high risk game. And if he had won, he would have secured a lot of cannons and ammunition for the colonial yes. cause during the Revolutionary War. It would have been a great victory. Absolutely. And we needed all that ammunition and we needed uh, that that heavy heavy artillery. We, we were in desperate. Yeah, but it also it explains why Nicholas Biddle, the, the, the subject of the book, he saw himself as an aristocrat. He saw himself as a member of one of the founding families of the country. You know, the, his ancestors were involved in the Revolutionary War, and he, he was starting, he got to become also involved with uh, uh, President Jefferson in the editing of the Lewis and Clark papers, which was a major undertaking. It, it was, and that was so interesting to me. I could almost have written a full book about how that came about, because um, uh, uh, Clark wrote to him in 1810 and said, you have been recommended as an editor for these journals. And I'm not sure whether that was Jefferson. There's just no hint about how that happened. But after Biddle came back from Europe in 1807, he went immediately to meet with Thomas Jefferson to describe what was happening in Europe at the time, because as you know, that was the height of the Napoleonic Wars. And he had traveled extensively through Europe and had information that nobody else had at that time. And uh, so when this came about that, um, that Clark, William Clark wrote to him, um, Biddle's first response was, I can't, I have no idea. That's an enormous undertaking. That's going to take years. So, and being a rash young person, um, he said no, and then changed his mind the next day. And he never really lost that sense of, I'm going to do it. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Absolutely. Full board. So he then wrote back uh, to Clark and said, I've changed my mind. 
But lest that letter not arrive soon enough, he jumped on a stagecoach and journeyed for four days down to see Clark in Virginia and, and actually was there before the letter was even received. So then their correspondence back and forth was, it's just a delight to read because Clark is reliving these extraordinary adventures and Nicholas Biddle writes to him and says, now, now I see you here and now I'm with you there and tell me more and give me the names of all of those trees and those plants and those people and give me the translations of those tribal languages. It, it's, you were there with both men. Yeah. I loved, I loved reading those letters. Well, and his response in the editing of the journal, which was a million words, we're talking, yes. you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm flabbergasted um, at how much that is, because I'm editing my wife's uh, novel, and it's only 220,000 words. Yeah. thought of five times that is really daunting. But he brought out a lot of information that Clark didn't put in there. And his editing job went kind of beyond just making sure the grammar is correct and transcribing everything. He helped refine the book to make it more useful. Well, he had been, I mean, he, he loved literature and um, he had been the editor of the portfolio, which was then the preeminent literary compendium of the time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the writers who contributed to that were extraordinary. And, um, Adams being one of them. So, so he had this enormous uh, reverence for words and for how words, how powerful words are and how you convey emotion and thought. And so I think he was a natural to do this job, but he didn't feel that he was until he began doing it. And then he was swept away. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is a young man of, of 15 to graduate from Princeton. So he was obviously uh, intellectually um, uh, fluent, um, not a good use of words, I'm afraid, but he's learned to edit books. He, uh, has, he went on his journey to uh, Europe for which you found the journals um, that had thought to be lost. And you have suspicions that he ended up kind of being a foreign correspondent to Jefferson and, um, was it Monroe as well? Monroe, yeah, he was, um, I, I believe, I mean, I can't use the word spy in the book, but I believe that's the purpose that he served because the journals, the European journals are really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they are, um, in the, the ones that are in, are in Europe tend to only talk about dinner companions, famous dinner companions famous artwork, places that he travels. He never mentions the Napoleonic Wars, and yet he journeys from France into occupied Austria, which means crossing through Switzerland and having and seeing all of the troop migrations. And he doesn't mention the quote, noisy cannonades of Europe until he start, gets to Greece and there, writes again another journal that takes place in Greece. And so how, how is that possible? Is, is, did, he, did he fear that if the journals were taken 
from him while he was crossing from one border to another, that someone white might understand what his true mission was. I don't know, but there's no, no reference to any of the war and it, it was consuming Europe. So it just made me wonder. And then I also found at Andalusia a cipher. So this was a popular form of sending a letter in code um, I can't translate it, so I don't know what it means, but I found it to be really a compelling uh, argument for the fact that he was doing some something clandestine for the nation. And then the fact that he went immediately to visit with uh, or meet with President Jefferson when he came home in 1807, although his parents believed that he was coming directly back to Philadelphia and went to meet him at the Lazaretto where he was to be, his ship was gonna be maintained until he could be free to come into Philadelphia. Well, and in a previous interview, you'd mentioned that you employ informed conjecture from yes. reading this. And I see, I think your interpretation is correct because there's no other reason to have a cipher in your papers if you don't intend to use it or if no. you have no interest otherwise in in the rudiments of spy. And it doesn't necessarily have to be spycraft. It can simply be you're acting as a, a back channel courier. You know, you're talking yes. to people. They want to say, if you're talking to the President Jefferson, just mention this. And of course, it's always a matter of just gathering information. What's the gossip? What's the news? What did you see? And it's not necessarily espionage in the way it's commonly considered. It's just simply you're acting as the eyes of somebody else. Absolutely. And he did that when he went to Malta because he met with a then commandant, um, American commandant um, of, in Malta, and um, who gave him all sorts of information about the British presence in Malta and how they were hoping to maintain their strength um, against Napoleon. And there again, that came into that, that Greek journal, but it couldn't come into any of the journals from Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, and this becomes important because uh, when he was appointed, he was appointed as a director of the Second National Bank. The bank was in kind of a sad state, wasn't it? It was um, the, the original directors, uh, the, the man who was the, the president um, was a poor choice. And um, he surrounded himself with directors. He was a fairly weak individual and he surrounded himself with directors who were on the take. Um, and there was graft and greed was rampant. They were uh, doing insider trading. And so Monroe, who was then uh, president, was said, I, I need a director. I need someone to go in and examine this. And would you serve as a director and report back to me only? Yeah. And Biddle did that and, um, and, and was able to make recommendations for how the entire bank should be changed and how he wrote a, a whole portfolio on that. Um, and how banking, how this, these, they should get rid of this director and that director, but make, but create transparency because there was none. That's what's so fascinating I find about Biddle is his ability to master that arcane subject for which he had no experience before. Is, is that correct? 
None. He, he really, when he was at Princeton, he couldn't even balance his finances. He was constantly asking his father for money and saying, oh, I don't know what became of the money you sent me last month, but <laughs> I don't know. And, and um, I, so the idea that he would even consider going into banking, but he was also, you know, he loved literature, but he was a very methodical person and thoughtful person. So he was kind of a polymath in many ways. His, his brain was linear and nonlinear at the same time. I don't know how that's possible. My brain is only linear, nonlinear. I don't know. I find it very difficult as well. That's why I have notebooks and schedules and workflows. It's the only thing, because otherwise the brain just shoots off ideas in all, all sorts of different directions. Um, but also, I guess because, so he's acting as Monroe's uh, informant, and he's also helping to restructure and reform the banking system, the the second the second national bank. And, and of course, there's opposition to that as well from the people who are profiting from it. Um, Absolutely, but he prevailed. And so the bank became a very stable and trusted institution. The Rothschilds, as you mentioned, the French banking system uh, admired him. The British admired him. They admired how he, how he transformed this organization and made it really a national, strong, trusted, in. Uh, institution, and I often wonder whether if whether if it had not been for Jackson's absolute distrust of banking altogether, um, because Jackson had been bankrupted himself at one point, and he really distrusted the institution of banking. He distrusted the people whom he viewed as the moneyed elite, um, and I often think if Biddle had continued to prevail. And the second bank of the United States, which was based in Philadelphia, had continued its success story. Wall Street, as we know it, wouldn't have existed. That would still be Philadelphia. But it was um, Martin Van Buren, who was a New Yorker, and who was Jackson's vice president, who was whispering in his ear and um, and saying, I think we should move this institution to New York. Mm -hmm. So you wonder how our nation would have, how different our nation would have been. Of course, I say that as a Philadelphian, I would have liked to have seen that here. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think what I really enjoyed about the book is that it's, it's, a, it's a biography, uh, it deals with economics, it deals with early American history, and it, it brings it all together to kind of show how personalities can influence history. You get, you get the right person in the, wrong, in the right time, you may have a Lincoln, you get the wrong person in the times, and you have a Jackson and Van Buren. Uh, because as you point out afterwards, after the, uh, the bank was closed, um, they went through a, a panic and a depression for a number of years. Absolutely. It... Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a, a wonderful journalist in Philadelphia who wrote about how tragic everything had become. And all the fine houses were put up for sale. Nobody had any money. Everybody was depressed. Um, there was just nothing to be had. And that those were the wealthy people. So the people who were not wealthy, who were struggling, 
really were in absolute despair because of this. Yeah. And it shows the importance of how structure, how you have to have structures, you have to have laws, you have to have oversight, and you have to have transparency in order to build a system that is trustworthy. Yes. Because yeah. like any institution, anything that goes on long enough can have people who come in with uh, not uh, altruistic purposes in mind. And that is one True. thing Biddle had. He saw this as a duty. That was his, part of his aristocratic privilege, wasn't it? He did. He did. He felt that, well, this family had come here in 1681 mm -hmm. and as Quakers and uh, settled in New Jersey. And he felt that this was an inherited duty to, to nation and uh, to, to do whatever he could to protect and strengthen this nation that he loved and that his family had loved for generations. Yes, that uh, that noblesse oblige, mm -hmm. uh, as you, you put it in there, he was influenced by their father, Charles. And yes. you write, his sons understood that they were nobler men and more productive citizens because of their father's high expectations of them, his daughters that they should be the helpmeets of respected and industrious husbands. Yes. And yes, he, yes, I, I a very thoughtful statement. I had to pause for well, a little bit to think about that. It's interesting because um, now we don't think of that. We think of women having their own power and their own rights, but that was not true at the time. And so I had to keep subjugating my own sense of uh, who I am and saying, no, that's what these women were helpmeets. And if they were good at their job, as all of the Biddle women seem to be, then they furthered their husband's careers because they were constantly saying, oh, but have you considered this? I think, I think Jane Biddle did that with uh, Nicholas Biddle, Jane being the, the wife of Nicholas, mm -hmm. but very quiet in the background. Yes. Uh, my wife, who was, who was in the Navy, uh, said something along the lines of, it's something like you get to, uh, you get to be a, a one-star rank through your own efforts, but you get to be a flag rank through your wife's efforts. <laughs> so some things, some things don't change, but it's also, it's really, you know, that, that is important about reminding about women's roles at the time, but it's still that I, we miss that sense of service and noblesse oblige, which can be anybody who's doing a job that involves some authority to be able to make decisions that are not always self-serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think Biddle felt that, I mean, he grew up with his father having been in the uh, Revolutionary War, his uncle, um, another uncle who served on the state, state legislature. And so it was a given that you served your country in yeah. whatever capacity you were called. Yeah. It was just a given. Now, what I also liked about your book, particularly about depicting Biddle's, that you depict his, whatever his shortcomings as well. You know, his, his inability to handle his personal finances, but also his belief that he, he knew best. And if he just explained to somebody, they would agree with him. He, he I, I, I must say, I loved finding his hubris because uh, what I didn't want to do was paint him as perfect and Jackson as imperfect. I really wanted to find the places where his flaws came in because any good writing, you want to create a character who, who has difficulties. 
And I think he probably understood those difficulties, um, but was powerless to stop himself from saying, you know, this worthy president and I'm, I'm going to defeat him and, and, and blowing off steam constantly. Um, but he was also powerless. He thought he could defeat a sitting president. That's impossible. Um, but it didn't stop him from trying. And I found his hubris, instead of irritating, I found it, um, I don't want to say charming, because that's not really quite the right word, but I found it very helpful for me as an author. Oh, to yeah, say, that's... you know, here's here's a weakness in this man. And uh, how do I write about that weakness? We all have them. And um, do I, myself, am I filled with so much pride that I would think I could defeat a sitting president? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. There, yes, our reach exceeds our grasp. <laughs> yes. So how long, how long have you been working on this book? Oh, gosh, I think the research, really research, writing, research, writing, four and a half years. Mm -hmm. I could see that. It just I, uh, just uh, deciphering his handwriting must have taken him two or three years alone. I was very lucky with that because I, uh, when I was up at Andalusia reading his letters, the wonderful archivist there, um, Connie Houchins, I, I was taking his letters and turning them upside down so that I could try to read them. And she peered over my shoulder and she said, well, I think that's an A. And I, 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 I had no, no idea. It was so interesting when he was writing uh, and happy, his handwriting sloped up. When he was worried about something, the handwriting sloped down. It was fascinating mm -hmm. because I felt then that I was with him as he was composing these letters. Yeah. Uh, I, I can see, and it's a fa it is a fascinating read, and I, I highly recommend it if you're at all interested in this period, and if you're especially looking at presidential politics and the way the media plays a role, uh, there is just some fascinating parallels to uh, to current history there. Um, no matter what you think, it is history repeats itself, and sometimes it does rhyme very accurately. And I yes. highly recommend your book. Thank you. Thank um, you. Now, you've also written a, you've written a number of mystery series. You've written the Nero Blanc series, but I wanted to ask about your Martha Beale series. Can you describe for us what, what you were doing with it? When you've, it's up to five books now, isn't it? Yep. Um, and I, I, I started that because I really knew nothing about um, Philadelphia between, between the wars. Mm -hmm. um, that being the War of 1812 in the Civil War. Uh, I live in the past. I mean, I just live in the past, so, um, except for Zoom. Um, and I wanted to understand it. And then I found that this era, this particular era, the 1840s, was a time of such a chasm between wealth and poverty. And I wanted to expose that. I wanted to expose how women were treated um, and I didn't want to stand on a soapbox. I thought, think that's pretty boring. So I um, created uh, a female protagonist, um, Martha Beale, and she is the daughter of a financier. I didn't think of Nicholas Biddle. This, I was, this was before I this. I was, 
I was, I don't know what I was channeling, but so <laughs> she's, she's the daughter of a wealthy man. He goes missing in the first book and she then takes it upon herself to try to find out what happened to him. And it leads her into an, another world of Philadelphia misery and poverty. And, and she then sets about trying to rectify that as well as trying to understand what happened to her father. And I became, so I wrote it as just a standalone book, but I became so fascinated by the period and so fascinated by her as she developed because in the first book, she starts out rather trepidating and, uh, and then comes into her own. And um, there's a love interest, of course, um, but she really comes, becomes a very strong woman, um, even though she, on the surface, is not permitted to be so. Now, her wealth does set her apart. If she were a person of no means, she wouldn't be permitted to do that, to behave that way. She becomes an iconoclast. And I, I just had a wonderful time writing about her and, um, and her adventures. And there were people who wandered into the book. Um, there was a little boy who all of a sudden just appeared and he was supposed to be an ancillary character just watching something happen on a hillside and all of a sudden he was part of another novel and then an actress whom I uh, fashioned after a real actress who had been British who came to this country and married uh, a, a man who was living in Philadelphia but owned slaves and so I put her in the, in the novel and it just kind of grew exponentially. And uh, I'm, I find the period just fascinating. Yeah. Would Philadelphians uh, recognize certain locations in those books? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am, I believe that my research must be exact. If I say something happens on a certain day, I want the reader to know that that happened on that day in that place and the building looked exactly the same because I walk down the street and I can look at all the houses that surround me in the middle of what is now called Society Hill in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and I can conjure up all of these scenes yeah. well that was the first novel was called The Conjurer but I I used that I used that language because I think those people are real to me yeah yeah and I remember I took my son down to Constitutional Hall on a field trip for us. And we w literally walked around the corner and found a restaurant. There's a restaurant there that uh, is from a building that existed in colonial times. And you walk yeah. down that street and you can kind of close, half close your eyes and still see what it must have been like, because a lot of the neighborhood is, seems to be very well preserved from colonial days. It, it is absolutely. When I'm walking back home from either the library company or the historical society of Pennsylvania. I am so wrapped up in history <laughs> that I honestly, I'm a danger to myself because I expect to hear horses and carriages and people selling fruits and vegetables on the street corners. And when a SEPTA bus pulls back past me, I think what on earth happened here? How did I time travel? Mm -hmm. In fact, I've time traveled in the other direction. Yes, it's like stepping stepping out of a Jack Finney novel time and again, which is wonderful. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this. I had a great time and it has flown really quick here. Um, so if people want to know more about you and your books, where can they reach you? Um, my website is cordeliafrancisbiddle.net and that's F-R-A-N-C-E-S. Um, so cordeliafrancisbiddle.net. Um, and I'm delighted to answer emails or my email address is on there as well. So if people want to get in touch with me, they can. If they want to shoot me a line, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to respond. Absolutely. Are you working on anything else now, by the way? I am. I have one, one novel that will be coming out in November 2022. Very dark. Um, but I'm working on, and, and that's also history, but I'm working on a, a book that I just love right now, which is taking a house in Philadelphia and telling the entire history of the city from the British occupation, from the house's point of view. So the house is a character. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I am, I am overjoyed with it. I am just because then if something happens, the house says, oh, I know the truth there. Mm -hmm. You don't. Yep. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm getting a little, little tingles that says, oh, that's a good idea. I wish I could steal it. <laughs> <laughs> you can borrow it. You can have a different house in a different location. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I got plenty of plenty of jobs right now. So I, that's one of those things that goes in the idea file and then I can forget about it until some other time. So, but, you know, so people, if you're interested in, in Biddle, Jackson and a Nation in Turmoil, it's available through Sunbury Press. And of course, it's available at Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop. Cordelia Francis Biddle, that evocative name. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Bill. I had a wonderful time. Uh, and this is Bill Peschel for Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents. And I hope your favorite book is the next one you read. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents podcast is sponsored by the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. The store is open with limited hours, plus we accept appointments and offer a drive-by service. The store will also ship books to your home, including those from the Peschel Press Mystery Line, including our annotated editions of novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. To learn more, visit the store at www.mysterybooksonline.com. And thank you for listening.